This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we just pray that you help us to really take to heart uh, the deep, deep words of Jesus here. To understand what it means uh, to be in the kingdom of heaven. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. I once uh, heard a pastor say in a sermon that a Christian only needs two degrees, a BA and an MSc. Now, I was thinking to myself, okay, what does he actually mean that, oh, you know, a Christian only needs two degrees, a BA and an MSc? Does he mean that a Christian needs a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's of Science? No, right? What he said was, he said actually the two degrees that you ever need as a Christian are to be a born again, your BA, and you need to be a mature spiritual Christian. Now today as we look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, we see the beginning of the curriculum of what it means to be a mature spiritual Christian. Now, from the beginning of the book of Matthew, we've already learned that Jesus was the King. He is the Christ, the eternal King. He was God. He was Emmanuel, God with us. In every way, He was literally God. He was divine. And He's also the Savior, Jesus, the Lord saves. And as we've been seeing, John the Baptist came preparing the way for Jesus. And Jesus Himself comes onto the scene. And He is the King that brings in the kingdom. Now, you notice that the message for both of them are the same, right? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And last week, we saw that the first disciples were called by Jesus. They repented, they followed Jesus, and now they are in the kingdom. So last week, we saw that um, there were huge crowds of people. If you can see the next uh, slide, there's a map, right? Oh, sorry, okay, next, uh, yep, this one, this one, keep going. Right, so what we're looking at here is that these disciples were repenting, they were called by Jesus, and they come into the kingdom. And as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we're not, it's not a sermon about how to get into the kingdom, it's a sermon about being in the kingdom, what it means to be a kingdom person. So in, in a way that a commentator said, it is how you live out your faith. That's what the sermon is about, how you live your faith out. Because last week we saw, okay, next slide. Okay, next one. That uh, Jesus had been healing and doing great miracles, and people were coming from all over the region, right? From Syria, from the Decapolis, from the other side of the Jordan, from J- Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, you got to keep clicking it. Okay. So you had these great crowds of people, but within the crowd of people were the disciples. So that's why if you look at uh, chapter 5, we begin here, right? When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to Him and He began to teach them. So these disciples were like a subset of the crowd. These were the disciples who repented, who responded to the call, who believed in Jesus, and now they were being instructed by Jesus as, what does it mean? To be in the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to live out your faith? So Jesus brings them out to the mountain. Okay, this is the 
See you, Galilee. It looks really pretty, right? Okay, you must go there for holiday one day. I've never been there anyway. So if you go up, so Jesus brought them out to the mountain and then he begins to teach them. And uh, the section here is called the Beatitudes. Okay, you look at your Bible, it's called the Beatitudes. But there's no such word here in the Bible, right? Because the Beatitudes actually comes from Latin. It actually just means to be blessed. That's a, it's like the Latin word for being blessed, right? And when we look at the word blessed, it is spoken from the mouth of Jesus. It is not the idea of happy. It doesn't mean happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who are meek, right? Because the word blessed is more than just happy. Because, you know, if you look here in verse 4, it said, blessed are those who mourn. Now, you can't be happy are those who mourn, because if you're mourning, how can you be happy? And if you're happy, how can you mourn? It doesn't make sense. The word blessed here has more the idea of being fortunate, being favored by God. It's like you are, you are favored by God. You are, in, in a way we say, you know, you're very lucky. You're very lucky to have this, right, in, in a human sense. And this blessedness is not a relative term, right? Like, you know, today you're blessed, tomorrow you're not blessed anymore. It is a permanent state in the eyes of God. So in the world we live in, we say, oh, you know, you're very fortunate. You know, you've got a good job. You're very fortunate. You have lots of friends. You're very fortunate. You have lots of money. But Jesus doesn't say any of those things. The first thing he says in verse 3 is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think what Jesus is saying here is that you are spiritually bankrupt. Those who enter the kingdom of heaven acknowledge that they have done nothing that deserves them being in the kingdom of heaven. They are like spiritual beggars. You know, so if you think about it, like if you want to migrate to America to get a green card or migrate to Canada or migrate to England or Australia, you know, there's like an immigration point system, right? You know, you can actually tally up all your points and if you get over a certain point, then you qualify to go in. So in a sense, you deserve to be there, right? You've qualified to be in. But to be in the kingdom of heaven, you actually have to acknowledge, I don't deserve to be in here. I've done nothing that I can offer God to be in the kingdom of heaven. So I remember in the children's church, how did they explain being poor in spirit? Well, they had this picture, right? Oh, the picture before? Hey. Did I put the picture before? Back, back again? Back? Yeah. Oh, one more? Oh, no. Can you go back once more? No more? No more. Okay, so anyway, there was a picture I had of, uh, that I saw of this people who hold up the pockets. You know, like, if you, you know, if your pockets are empty, right, you pull out all your pocket things. Ah, that's right, yeah. So, what it means is that literally you acknowledge that you are a sinner before God. And that's why when we have the song Amazing Grace, right? If you remember the, the very famous song Amazing Grace, it speaks of how amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost and now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. See, this is the definition of being poor in spirit because you recognize that you are a wretched sinner, you are blind, you are lost. You don't deserve to be saved. But God in His grace has saved you. Is this us? Are we poor in spirit? 
Do we stand before God and say how righteous I am and I'm, you know, I should be in the kingdom of heaven? Or do we recognize that we are nothing but wretched sinners? We are poor in spirit. Now verse 4 is the emotional counterpart to verse 3, right? Because it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, if you in your mind are poor in spirit and you recognize how wretched a sinner you are, then emotionally you will mourn. Because every day, every week goes past, you recognize how sinful you are. So today, yes, I didn't lie, but I struggled with lust. If I didn't struggle with lust today, then I struggle with gossiping. If I didn't struggle with gossiping, I struggle with anger. Every day you are confronted with how sinful you are. And that causes you to mourn at how sinful you are before God's holy standard. And therefore, you mourn. But you mourn not just because of your own sin. You mourn for the sins of the world. You read the newspaper, you read about uh, the doctor in the U.S. gymnastic team who molested so many young children right, under his charge. You read about cheating in the Olympics, and sport in general. Uh, you mourn about how, say, like uh, uh, the Indonesian uh, Chinese uh, guy in prison, you know, he, he wants to divorce his wife. You mourn about all these things because you see the world and it's not as you like it to be. Again, Jesus says, Blessed are you those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Because there will be a day in which we will live where we will be perfect and the world we live in will be perfect and there will be no more mourning. So I wonder, do we mourn? We do not mourn because Arsenal lost to Tottenham yesterday, right? I mean, do you mourn for, for the things that are important to God, for sin in the world, for sin in your own life? Verse 5 goes on to say, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, to be meek here is not to be like a doormat. You know, everybody walks over you or to be timid like a mouse, right? You just sit there very quietly and just run away every noise. That's not to be meek. But I think to be meek means that you're not an arrogant, proud and pushy person. You know, you're not someone who is like like bigger than you are and, 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 and forcing your way through in this world. Now, we often think that it is just the worldly person who is like this, you know, a very pushy person. The people who cut the queue, the people who cut me when I'm driving, the people who cut me when I'm at the MRT, you know, we think, oh, these are the worldly pushy people. But you can be religious and pious and still not be mean. You know, I've been to meetings with uh, pastors and church leaders and you have some people who are not meek at all. They're very pushy and very proud and arrogant in their own right. But what it's trying to tell us is actually as we are God's people, we must be like Jesus because Jesus was meek. He was the Christ. He was God. But yet he was meek and humble and gracious. So we remember that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Right? He was humble. He was gracious. He was servant-hearted. Are we meek people? 
Or are we people who push our way and demand things and are arrogant and proud? Now, I said before that just because you're meek doesn't mean that you do not stand up for what is right. You can stand up for what is right without losing your meekness. In verse 6, it goes on to say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, it's interesting that uh, Jesus uses the phrase hunger and thirst, right? Now, I think in the world that we live in, uh, hunger and thirst are very unfamiliar concepts and feelings to us. When's the last time you felt really thirsty? Not really, right? When's the last time you felt really, really, really hungry? Uh, again, very hard to remember, right? I want you to remember the last time you were really, really hungry and the last time you were really, really thirsty. Okay, I think the last time I was really thirsty was I was lost when I was a scout or something at Merritchie Reservoir. We lost our way and, you know, we had no water to drink. And I can still remember how thirsty I was, right? Like, we weren't supposed to drink the water from the reservoir because it's not clean. But you really want to drink. You're just so thirsty. And that physical desire, that physical craving to want to drink or to eat, well, that's the craving that Jesus is talking about here. Do you, like, physically crave righteousness? Do you crave to see righteousness done in your own life? Do you crave to see righteousness done in the, in the world around you? Because if you physically crave righteousness as you hunger and as you thirst, then you will not tolerate sin in your own life. You will not say, ah, it's okay, I, you know, I just lied a bit, or I lusted a bit, or I slandered someone. Because you hunger and thirst for righteousness. So recently, um, I've been watching this thing on Netflix, right? This movie, I really, uh, this series I really like called uh, Altered Carbon, right? You've probably never heard of it. But I really like science fiction. It's really good science fiction. But I realized after watching a few season, uh, series within the first season that there's so much nudity in it. And then as I was preparing the sermon, I thought to myself, if I'm really hungry and thirsting for righteousness, how can I watch this and still say that really I physically hunger and thirst for righteousness? for righteousness in my own life and righteousness in the world around me. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. If you, if you are a kingdom person living out your faith, you must hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because eventually, it says there, you will be filled. Because when the kingdom of heaven comes into this world, we will be filled because we will see God's righteousness Everywhere, in our lives, and the lives of people around us. This is linked. I'm going to skip uh, verse 7. I'm going to go straight to verse 8 for the moment. Because I think hungering and thirsting for righteousness is very much tied with verse 8. The purity in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, as we will see when we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very concerned with internal purity. And uh, as we will see in the next few weeks, one of the problems is the world that Jesus came to was very obsessed with external purity. The Pharisees were very much concerned with what does it look like on the outside to be pure. Jesus says, no, I'm not interested in what's on the outside. I'm, I'm worried about what's on the inside. I want 
the inside to be pure, and through the inside being pure, then it comes on the outside. Uh, whereas what the Pharisees were doing was they were only interested in the outside, not the inside. So the Pharisees said, oh, you know, adultery and sexual morality, that's only when you touch, that's only when you do things on the outside. But Jesus said, no, it is when you lust with your eyes, it's lust when you're, when you're thinking lustful thoughts. Jesus is interested with the purity on the inside. Uh, the Pharisees said, when you speak about truth, it's only in the context of telling oaths. But Jesus said, no, it's not about the context of making oaths. It's about telling the truth for the sake of truth because I'm pure on the inside and I want to tell the truth on the inside. So I remember many years ago, I, I, there was this cartoon that used to be printed in the newspaper. I don't see it anymore. Maybe the guy doesn't write this anymore. But he writes these really interesting cartoons, right? And uh, he, this one's so good that I cut it out. and I, I lost it, but I managed to scan it before I lost it. And uh, he says, you know, this is the inevitable intersection on the road to life. Oh, you can't, maybe you can't see. It's not clear enough, right? So on the, on the right is to be morally right. And on the left is to be legally right. Right? So, oh, that's very good. Thanks. So you can see that actually you can be legally right. You can obey the law, but actually from the inside, you, you really don't want to obey the law. You're just doing it because it's the law. But it's not actually morally right. So, you know, the Bible says, okay, don't commit sexual morality. Okay, so if I want to obey the law, I don't physically sleep with anybody, but I can still flirt with people in the office. But if you are pure on heart, you'll know that flirting is not what God wants. That's the intent of sexual morality, right? Flirting is, in your heart, actually lustful. I can tell white lies at work, and that's not breaking the law. There's no law against telling white lies, right? Or, or, or bending the truth, or shading the truth. But if you're pure in heart, you know that that's not what is the righteousness that God wants. That's not what it means to be pure in your heart, following the intention of what God wants. But it says here, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Okay, the passage then goes on. We're going backwards to verse 7 now. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, this is uh, the reason why for our responsive reading, I got us to read the Matthew chapter 18 section, the parable of the unmerciful servant, right? The unjust servant. Because... It's almost, verse 7 is very disturbing, right? Because there's a causality, right? There's a connection. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, is God saying that if you are not merciful, you will not be shown mercy? Uh, maybe not so strongly. But it's saying that those who have received mercy, those who know that they are being forgiven by God, must forgive other people, right? It's, it's like, if you've, if you remember the parable of the unmerciful servant, if you've been forgiven a debt of hundreds and thousands of golden coins, how will you not forgive a debt of a hundred silver coins? Right? Because God has forgiven you so much. And if you understand how much God has forgiven you and how much it costs for Jesus to die on the cross for you, then how can you fail to not forgive other people? 
Now, I think this is very difficult, and obviously you could preach a whole sermon on this, and there could be a whole book written on this. But I know that some people have had terrible things done to them. And it's very hard for us to forgive. And emotionally, it is painful to forgive. But if you look at verse 7 very clearly, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It means that as Christians, we must be forgiving people. We must show mercy to other people. We must not seek to hold grudges against people. Now, it's difficult, it's hard, but as we enter the kingdom of heaven and we understand the forgiveness that we've been receiving from God, in fact, the, the forgiveness we receive from God every day, then we must be merciful to other people. Verse 9 goes on to say, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, when I think of the word peacemaker, I always think of the United Nations, right? Because, you know, if, if the United Nations does anything, it's supposed to, to, to bring peace. Lah. That's why the United Nations was formed, right? It was to bring peace to the world. And you always think of those United Nations soldiers, they always wear the, the blue hats, right? And they go to all, all the different places in the world to bring peace. Now, I think the world we live in, uh, I don't know about the rest of the world, but I know definitely in Singapore, um, when, 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 when I was growing up, my, my parents always used to tell me, hey, yeah, don't go capo on other people's business, right? Don't be such a busy body. Don't um, poke your nose in other people's business. If other people are arguing, other people are fighting, just leave them alone. But as a Christian, it actually tells us that we are peacemakers. Uh, I think this is really difficult because... Actually, in the world that we live in, it's easier for us to create conflict than there is to bring peace. Right? Uh, I think in a practical way, you you bring peace um, by trying to bring people together. I know that when I was working, you know, it was very hard when you go for lunch to stop people from gossiping all the time. You know, we're always going for lunch and we're always gossiping about this person and that person. And actually, gossiping actually creates conflict. Right? It, it creates conflict among people. But the peacemaker will try to bring peace among people. Now, the problem about being a peacemaker is that sometimes there are casualties, right? So even the United Nations, right, uh, when they try to bring peace, the peacemakers die, right? Because people want to fight and they want to get rid of the United Nations so that they can fight with one another. In the same way, when we are peacemakers, often we will not be appreciated. In fact, most of the times you will not be appreciated. And many times you might actually be the collateral damage, right? When, when you're actually trying to bring peace, you get exploded up yourself, right? But the Bible says here very clearly that Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, I think that there's actually something more to this, right? than just peace between people. Because ultimately, the big problem is that God has a broken relationship with humanity. So when we bring peace, we do not just bring peace between peoples, but we are also seeking to bring peace between God and people. 
And I think part of being a peacemaker also means that we must tell people the good news about Jesus because that is the way that God brings peace between himself and humanity. So peacemaking is not just limited to, oh, okay, I, I try to resolve the conflict between this aunt and that aunt or, you know, this sibling and that sibling or this friend and friend, but it's also between God and men and women. And as, as we do so, we will be called children of God because I think that displays one of the characteristics of God. God wants to bring peace on earth. That's why he sent Jesus Christ, right? What's the Christmas thing again? Peace on earth, right? Because Jesus Christ has come onto the earth. Now, as we come to the last blessed, it actually is different in many ways to the ver- first uh, eight characteristics, right? From uh, three to nine, right? Because the other first blessed characteristics of verse three to nine are all um, things that I do. Things that are within me, right? Poor in spirit, mourn, hunger, thirst for righteousness, peacemakers. But verse 10 is unusual because I'm blessed because of how other people treat me. It's not about how I act, it's about how other people relate to me. It says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it doesn't mean that as a Christian, I go out to look for persecution. It doesn't mean to excuse me as Christians to be a rude person. Uh, It doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because of rudeness, right? It says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, This ties verse 10 back to verse 3 and 9. What is the righteousness? What are the righteous acts that Jesus has in mind? He's saying that when you behave in verse 3 to verse 9, if you behave in this way, you will be persecuted. That's why it says, you will be persecuted because of righteousness. If you seek to hunger and thirst for righteousness, you tell people, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't tell dirty jokes. You tell a Christian, maybe you shouldn't flirt. Or you tell someone, I remember I was telling a friend of mine, hey, you shouldn't use pirated uh, software. You may be persecuted because the world doesn't like you having these qualities. Look at what it says there in verse 11 to 12. Because 11 to 12 expand on verse 10, right? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, people will persecute you because of Jesus, because of me, it says. If you hold on to these qualities because of Jesus, if you follow Jesus faithfully, people will insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. That doesn't sound very pleasant at all. But it is inevitable. 
It is inevitable because Jesus says, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, the prophets came speaking God's word. The prophets came living faithfully before God. And society opposed them, were offended by them, were repulsed against them. In the same way, we live authentic Christian lives in society. The world will persecute you. But, it says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Yes, life is going to be tough because the world doesn't like you. Yes, it's going to be tough because people are going to be offended. But rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. Now, some of you may be asking, do you get rewards in heaven, right? You know, do you get like bigger house in heaven, smaller house, you know, you get more rewards. Uh, I don't know. When you read this passage, I'm not so sure, right? Because actually your reward in heaven uh, might just be the kingdom of heaven itself, right? Because actually verse 10 is linked to verse 12 and they kind of parallel each other, right? So for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is the reward of persecution. Verse 12, your reward in heaven is great. So actually, it may may just be that your reward is entry into the kingdom of heaven. But it shows you why is it it is so hard to live a mature spiritual Christian life. Easy to be born again. Hard to live out your faith. Hard to be poor in spirit, to mourn for righteousness, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. Because of persecution. Because it is tough. Now, I remember this guy, uh, George Whitfield, used to say, you know, he used to get worried if no one persecuted him after three days. Right? I'm not saying that we, we should be looking for persecution after every couple of days. But the reality is, we've got to ask ourselves the hard question, am I not living out these qualities because I'm scared of being persecuted? I know I have in my life many times, right? I feel like I know what God wants me to do, but I don't want to do it because I know that when I do it, you're just asking for trouble, right? You just, you know, you know, when you, when you see people telling lies or you, people want you to behave in a unethical or wrong way, people want you to do something, you know you should tell someone about it, but you know that when you do so, it's only going to bring trouble on you. But the reality is, we have to, because we are kingdom of heaven people. Verse 13 to verse 16 actually is a warning to us that if you choose not to live in this way, you are actually at risk. It is a big, big warning. It says to you in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. See, what is your role in society? You are to be like salt. Salt is used as a preservative. It prevents decay. It slows down things from going bad. 
That's why you have uh, salted meat. Uh, that's why you have kimchi. That's why you have kimchi. You know, you like it's like it's like every all those salted things we 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 we, we don't we don't eat it because it's you know oh I like salt right but it's because in the past these things were like this because they lasted a long time. But in the same way as Christians, we are like to be salt in the world. We are to preserve the world morally. We are to stop society from going bad. Now, the Bible warns us, Jesus warns us very clearly, if you lose your saltiness, you are useless, good for nothing except to be thrown out onto the street where people walk on you. Now, hey, you move so fast. Huh? Okay, go back, go back, go back, go back. Okay, so uh, in the ancient world, we, they don't make salt like chemically, right? They will actually get salt. Even today, uh, I was reading some, it was in um, the Straits Times, some travel thing. You can go to like, I don't know where's this place, Nepal or some place where they still harvest the salt, right? So people actually go and then there's a lot of salt content in, in, in the lake or something and they just harvest the salt and then they sell the salt. Now, <clears throat> The salt itself cannot lose its saltiness. It is always salty. But what happens is, salt can lose its saltiness because it is corrupted by too much impurity. It gets diluted. Right? So there's a little bit of salt, but 10 parts of it is like sand or crystal or minerals. It loses its saltiness. Now that is the picture that Jesus wants to bring. We are the salt of the world, but we get corrupted because we get mixed in with the values of this world. So we are no longer salty. We are no longer distinct. We lose our saltiness because we ourselves are mixed with so much of the values of this world that we are indistinct from this world. We no longer stop the moral corruption in this world. Now, when that happens, when we, when we become corrupted with all the impurities of the world, when our values are no longer distinct as per the Sermon on the Mount, but we become like the world, then we are no longer salt. We no longer stop the moral decay of the world. And Jesus warns us that when you become like this, and you lose your distinctiveness, you are useless to God. God throws you out. Now this guy a German theologian called Helmut Tillich um, gives this illustration. I don't know how... Um, okay, it sounds really good, love, but I don't know whether it's an appropriate illustration. But, but he said, the problem with Christians today is they don't want to be the salt of the world. You know what they want to be? The honey of the world. Because you want to be liked. And, you know, like honey is something everybody likes, right? But salt, he said, has a very biting and sharp taste. You know, it's, it's a very bracing taste. And the thing is, do you live, like in a sense, like the honey of the world, where, oh, you know, as a Christian, I want everybody to love me, see how good I am, I just do lots of good deeds, but I'm not the salt of the world because I'm not there telling people that they're doing the wrong thing, I'm not living in a way which is offensive to people. But Jesus says we are the salt of the earth. That means when we see people saying, oh, uh, Sexuality, gender, oh, it doesn't really matter. Well, Jesus says if you're the salt of the earth, you will offend people because you say no. The Bible says that God wants marriage to be between man and a woman. 
He would not like sexual morality outside of marriage. And when we see the world saying, oh, you know, uh, abortion is, is really good, euthanasia is really good, then as Christians we'll say, oh no, we don't think so. We think that's murder. And again, people will get really offended, right? But you are the salt of the earth. You are distinct. When you lose the distinctiveness, Jesus says, you are good for nothing. In verse 14 and 16, it is a similar image. It says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, you can see, right, in the ancient world uh, where there were not so many lights, when you have a city on a hill, it shines really brightly. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember now. I remember a long time ago, I went to America and I drove to Las Vegas, right? And you know, Las Vegas is in the middle of the desert. But when you're driving there, it's like for miles, like for an hour before you even get there, you can see these bright lights like over the horizon because it's in the middle of the desert. So in the same way, Jesus says, we are like the lights of the world. We're not Las Vegas, by the way, right? But we're different lights and we shine into the world. So he says, you know, if you light a lamp, obviously he doesn't have electricity. Then next slide. All right. You put the oil lamp at a high place so you can illuminate what you're doing on the table, right? Uh, you don't put the lamp under a bowl, okay, or under the table, right? Because it defeats the purpose of the lamp. Why buy a lamp and put it under the table or put it under the bowl? Jesus says, as kingdom people, our purpose in the world is to be the light of the world. But the danger for us as Christians are, we want to hide that light because we don't want to be persecuted. Jesus says, that as the light of the world, you shine into the world knowledge about God by your actions and your words and your deeds. Because it says there, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That is the light that you're shining into the world. You want people to see God and to know God and to know Jesus Christ. So many years ago, I think I gave this illustration before. My dad, uh, who is a Christian, came back from a talk by a Christian businessman. Actually, I'm not sure whether he was a businessman or a very, very successful uh, civil servant. But he was telling my dad uh, and a big crowd of people how in his whole working life he had done many, many good things when he was working. He treated the staff very well. He was a good boss. He done many things. But he had never, ever, ever told anybody at work that he was a Christian. So my dad's conclusion to me was, see, that's what you should do. You should do lots of good things, but never tell anybody that you're a Christian. And I'm thinking, that's not what Jesus is saying, right? If you're the light of the world, how can people praise God and know God, Jesus if you just do good things without telling them that you're a Christian? All they will think of is, you are such a great person, right? Wow, you're such a generous boss, you're such a good person. But they will never praise God. They will praise you. What the Bible is saying very clearly here is that you are the light of the world which shines people back to God. Now, do you live like this in the world? 
if we were to take a video recording of all of us for a week, right, or maybe a month or a year, will people see us and say, oh yeah, we noticed that you live in a very different way from everybody else. You are very distinct from the world. Uh, you know, we noticed that you mourn for the things that people don't mourn about. You are meek. You are merciful. You hunger and thirst for the right things of God. You make peace wherever you see conflict. You are somebody who uh, truly desires from the inner part of your heart uh, the right things, the good things. Because I think the danger is, uh, next slide, is that instead of being poor in spirit, right, many times we are self-righteous. Instead of mourning, we glory in sin. Instead of being meek, we are proud and arrogant. Instead of hungry and thirsting for righteousness, we see how much sin we can get away with. Instead of being merciful, we hold grudges. Instead of being pure in heart, we are only pure on the outside. Instead of being peacemakers, we prefer to just keep to ourselves, right? Don't want to capo other people. And instead of choosing to be persecuted, we want to be friends of the world. So in conclusion, uh, there was a very famous Christian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Right? And he died in 1945 because he was executed by uh, Hitler. Two days before his prison was uh, liberated by the Allies, right? And throughout his whole life, he actually, uh, Bonhoeffer is quite amazing when you read his uh, story because he actually was living outside of Germany when uh, Nazi Germany was rising and he purposely went back to Germany to oppose what he saw was happening in his own home country. He could have lived in America safely, but he chose to come back to Germany. And this is what he said, right? He said, if you choose, uh, okay, don't worry about what he wrote here, but I'll, I'll read to you what he wrote about other stuff. He said, if you choose to fly into invisibility, then you're denying the call of Jesus Christ. If you seek to hide yourself, right, hide the light, then you cease to follow Jesus. And I think that's very true. Right? If you want to be invisible in this world as a Christian, you want to hide your Christianness, then you're actually denying Jesus Christ. But the passage tells us, if you see the repeated phrase in this section, right, is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is worth standing up for. The kingdom of heaven is worth doing all these things because we can rejoice and be glad even when we find it hard to have these qualities because we have the kingdom of heaven. Great is our reward in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your words, the words of Jesus Christ, that we will see how blessed it is to have these qualities because we will have the kingdom of heaven in its fullness. We pray for ourselves that we will be poor in spirit, that we will mourn for righteousness, that we will be meek, that we will hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we will be pure in heart, that we will be merciful, that we will in our heart be genuinely desiring to do what is right, that we will be peacemakers and that we will be able to withstand persecution. 
Help us to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And in everything, rejoice and be glad, for we know that we have the kingdom of heaven. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.